Go ahead and pull out your Bibles and something to take notes with. We are a note-taking church. I promise you, if you take notes, you'll get more out of church than if you don't. So you can only come blame me for things being bad around here if you've got notes and you're still like, I got nothing being here. (laughs) Open up to Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing a series that we started last week. We are continuing a series we started last week, and it's going to take us through the next few months. It's going to be a beast of a time. We are calling it Christian Living, and we're going to be working through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, as we come to Jesus, and we are coming to him so that we can learn from him how to reorient from a self-centered lifestyle to a kingdom-centered lifestyle. We want to come to Jesus and say, okay, Lord, teach us. Teach us how to reorient from a self-centered lifestyle and put your kingdom at the center of the way that we live our lives. It sounds really good in church. It's kind of hard and scary to live sometimes, but we're in this together. Amen? Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be continuing this morning. This is going to be a long, long series, so uh, we're going to have several sections with parts, and uh, I hope that helps you. If it doesn't, just forget all those and just come every week and take your notes. But we are in the first section um, of, the, of how we're breaking it up. is just simply called preface. The section one we're calling the preface, because in many ways, the first few parts of the Sermon on the Mount serve as a preface to the whole sermon. Anybody ever read books? Like in the last five years, you read a book, maybe? Anybody? Sometimes a book has a preface. I used to skip the preface all the time. And then sometimes I'd be in chapter three, and I'm like, wait, what are we talking about again? And I'm like, oh, maybe that's why you write the preface. The author's like, hey, here's what we're about to deal with. Here's what I'm aiming for. Here's maybe the framework you need to start with. And Jesus, in some ways, gives that to us as he begins his Sermon on the Mount. Some things we need to be thinking about, some, uh, ways we need, some things we need to be expecting as we continue through the extensive content that Jesus covers in what we have as Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So this morning, I want to pick up where we left off last week, uh, which means might need a little bit of reminder, because just like your latest Netflix show, you got to remember how the last episode ended if you want to pick up the second one in the right spot. (laughs) Thank you, John. (laughs) Last week, we started uh, Christian Living. We started the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning with what is known as the Beatitudes, and we were noticing that... The list of the Beatitudes isn't so much a list of actions that we need to go out and do to become kingdom people. Jesus is painting for us a portrait of what kingdom people look like. We can't be kingdom people in our own strength, but Jesus is telling you and me, he's telling us, his followers, this is who you are by grace. And this is who, by grace, I'm going to teach you how to be. We can't do it in our own strength, but we can in the grace of God. This is who you are by grace, and this is who Jesus is about to teach us to be by that same grace. So as we move into verses 13 through 16 this morning, we will see that Jesus continues his his introductory thoughts. But I want you to notice as we start this morning that Jesus isn't just introducing us to his message. He He is introducing us to our new Christian selves. So would you stand with me as we read the word of God, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13. You good? 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lord, we thank you again for your word. And we invite you and ask you and we need you to speak to us, lead us, guide us, shape us, train us, encourage us, rebuke us, whatever it is that is needed. And open our hearts to receive and our minds to receive and our lives to receive. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It is good to consistently remind ourselves that the Bible, including the Sermon on the Mount and our text this morning, isn't written just to you or just to me. It's to us. You is plural. We read it singularly sometimes, but you is plural. The kingdom of God that Jesus came with and preached about and launched and inaugurated in the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about this last week, it is a whole new society. And no society is made up of a single individual. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes who we are on the inside. And when we, as a society of kingdom people, live out who we are on the inside... We are change agents to the world on the outside. And that's what I want to title part two this morning, change agents. Put that at the top of your notes this morning. If we want to practice true, real, authentic Christian living, we need to reorient from a self-centered lifestyle that has shaped in us self-centered desires and expectations of how we want the world to think of us of how we want the world to respond to us, of how we want the world to accept us. And we need to learn from Jesus a kingdom-oriented lifestyle that revolves around the reality that we are the salt of the earth and salt changes things. We are the light of the world and light changes things. Have you ever put a lot of effort into something that didn't end up mattering at all? I remember Heather and I were about to have a date night one time. And not like one time, that's the one time it ever happened, but there was this one particular date night. And, you know, the, the date night budget was low that month. I was trying to get creative, which I'm bad at. Like, anyways, we don't have time for how bad I am at date night. But um, I was like, all right, I'm going to come up with a good idea. We're going to figure out how to do this and something fun we can do. And so my wife loves Dairy Queen blizzards. So I was like, all right, we'll go get a Dairy Queen blizzard. That's cheaper than dinner. 
And then I'll like bring my computer, we'll find like a fun spot to watch a movie or something like that. You know, get, get a little creative, simplify and all that. So she also likes surprises. So I didn't tell her what we were going to do. So we're driving and we pull up to the Dairy Queen drive through and I'm like, hey, I start to tell her the plan. Hey, I thought we could like get blizzards and then maybe we'll go watch a movie somewhere. I'm like, what do you want? And what's the first thing she says? I don't really want a blizzard. And since the being creative part was really all about me feeling good about myself, of course, I got grumpy and the date night was ruined. And it was just, that was like two years ago, and I still have no idea if Heather likes blizzards or not. I could have sworn she did, but <laughs> I've been noticing as a Christian and as a pastor uh, for, for quite a long time now that, that us Christians and us pastors are kind of susceptible to the same sort of thing when it comes to being who we are called to be, when it comes to trying to live out Christian, a Christian lifestyle. We put a lot of work into, we have a lot of conversations about, we worry a lot about not making anybody feel uncomfortable, not turning anyone off, don't make too many messes or screw anything up. Be likable. Be relatable. Be relevant. Fit in. And then we give it all, that, all that effort, all that time, all that energy, we give it to God. And he looks at us and he's like, I didn't really ask for that. I said you're salt and light. See, when you get saved, when you give your life to Jesus, you are born again. You are a new creation. The old is gone and and something completely new comes. You get baptized. and, And when you get baptized, you are baptized into the death of Jesus. Like not literally, but actually. You get baptized into the death of Jesus so that you can raise in his resurrection. Romans 6 says, just as he did, that you might live a new life. Not just live a new life on your own, live his new life. You have been crucified with Christ, you no longer live. And the life you live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You are given the righteousness of Christ. Your righteousness in your own strength, it's like dirty rags. But you are given the righteousness of Jesus. Your sins are separated from you as far as the east is from the west. You are marked by a deposit of the very spirit of the living God. And by him you are adopted by the Father into his great kingdom. You don't get renovated. You get transformed from death to life. This is good news. And this is what happened, for those of you who are Christians, this is what happened when you became a Christian. If you're not a Christian, that is what happens should you decide to become a Christian. That is what happens when you become a Christian, and then after you became a Christian, you began the journey of learning how to be a Christian. You changed when you got saved. You changed. 
And now you're learning how to live changed. Sometimes all of this, to the Christians in the room, some of all of this can make you feel tension in your life. Because you believe everything I just said, and then you look at your life. Or I believe everything I said, and then I look at my life. Well, I don't want to throw you under the bus like that. But do you know the tension in your life? You're like, amen. You know, even as I'm saying it, it's rising up in you. You're encouraged. You want to stand up and shout and say amen until you think, well, hopefully my neighbor doesn't know what I was doing a couple days ago and see the hypocrite that I am. You know what I'm saying? Like, I believe it, but I don't see it all the way. There's tension in our lives with all of this truth. And you feel that tension as a Christian. Or, or maybe you're, you're not a Christian in the room. And one of the reasons you're not a Christian in the room is kind of like what John West was sharing. You've been burned by the church. And you, you, you hear what Christians say they believe. But then you've seen the way some Christians live. And there's a gap there. There's a tension there between what we say we believe. What the Bible does tell us. And some of our experiences living up to are not quite living up to maybe the truth that the Bible spells out for us. So as a Christian, you can, you can feel tension in your life in all of these things. And, and when you feel that tension, it makes you ask this question, am I doing this right? Can we just ask really honestly, and like maybe, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, though maybe it would help somebody. Like in the last year, did you ever, when you were quiet by yourself, genuinely kind of have the thought like, am I even saved? Okay, me and John, thank, wait, Nick, way to go. We got the bold men of God in the front row. So you're not alone. But seriously, you know, you, you feel this tension and it makes you like, ah, do I even love God? Was, that, was it even, is God even in me? Because <laughs> I know what else seems to be in me. And I want you to know this morning that, that actually if you feel that tension, it means you're doing it right. According to the Bible, if we're, if we're feeling that tension, it means we're doing this right. Because there is tension in what seems to be, even though everything I've shared with you this morning, it is one truth. It is the whole truth of the gospel. Sometimes it feels like two truths in tension. It feels like two sides of the coin. I, I, I'm new and alive in Christ, but I feel like I'm dead over here, you know? You have, you have this tension of these truths in your life, the truth that, that you were a sinner, but then you got justified, and now, it's though still, you're wrestling. You were a sinner who was justified, but now you find yourself a saint who's wrestling with being sanctified. You were a child of wrath, and now you're learning how to be a child of God. You were a slave to sin, but now you're learning how to live under new management as a slave to righteousness. You were dead in your trespasses, but now you're learning how to be alive in Christ. You were saved by grace, and now you're learning to live saved by that same grace. There is tension. I mean, in Romans 7, Paul, Paul says something like this. I, I don't do what I want to do. I do do what I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who can do anything with me? I know that tension. Colossians chapter 3 says it this way. Verse 3, it says, For you have died. Right? Past tense. Grammar majors? English majors? Humanitarian grammar? <laughs> English majors. For you have died. Right? You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Sounds pretty final. 
and done, if you ask me. Colossians 3, verse 3. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I thought it was already dead. I don't know. The point I'm trying to make to you this morning is this. As we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, as we come to Jesus to learn from him how to reorient from a self-centered lifestyle into a kingdom-oriented lifestyle, as we go through this preface, these initial parts where he isn't just introducing his message to us, he is introducing us to us, we need to understand that Jesus knows who you are better than you know who you are. I got a few nods, but everybody needs to write that one down. And we all need to go kind of sit down with that, a mirror, and the Holy Spirit this week. <laughs> Jesus knows who you are more than you know who you are. And we spend so much time and energy trying to figure out who we're supposed to be. Working to make ourselves who we think we're supposed to be. You ever put so much effort into your Christian living? Because it's like, you've read the Bible, you know how this is supposed to go. You know who you're supposed to be. You know how it's supposed to work out. You've seen somebody else do some awesome stuff, and you're going to be like them. We put so much work and energy trying to figure out, trying to work out, trying to prove to God I am who I'm supposed to be, instead of coming to Jesus with our weariness and our heavy burdens, laying them down and resting in the fact that if he tells us we are something, we are that thing. And learning from him as he is gentle and lowly in heart, learning from him how to live, grow, and mature as the people that he has already made us to be by his grace. I want us to come to his word this morning that way. Surrendering. Coming low with nothing to prove. Trusting that if Jesus is who he says he is, he must know who I am. And I don't have me figured out, so I'm going to listen to what he has to say. I'm going to let him teach me how I do this. And if he looks at me and says, you are the salt of the earth, I'm not going to approach the rest of this message as I preach it. I don't want you to approach the rest of the message as you sit there and receive it as what you are being told to do to become the salt of the earth. We've got to start with the living God looking at us and telling us, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Salt in the ancient Near East was primarily used as a preservative. It was an active agent against rot and decay in their food. They didn't have refrigerators and ways to store food and all of that. So before salt was simply a seasoning, it was a preservative. You would salt your food heavily before storing it so that you could protect it, so that your food would keep its integrity. And it, it, you, would, you would be extending the ability of your food to be what it truly was. Because rotten food ain't what you put in the storage bag, am I right? In the same way, Jesus has salted the earth with his kingdom people. Change agents who are proactive against the rot and decay of humanity and sin. A society ingrained into humanity to protect it, 
to preserve it, to fight for humanity, to be what humanity was made to be, to fight, to show people what it looks like to really be people. The world is trying to decay, and Jesus has salted the earth with you to preserve it. We take a stand for righteousness, not because of what we hate, but because of what we love. All right, I'm going to stay on that one for a second. When you stand for righteousness, you get maligned, you feel bad about it because you make some people feel uncomfortable. You get called and labeled things and bigot and self-righteous and all of these things. And when you stand for righteousness as a Christian, there will be times or maybe many times where the world will look at you standing for righteousness and interpret that you are standing against what you hate. But we are the salt of the earth. We are standing because of what we love. We are willing to take a stand because we love humanity. We love purity. We love righteousness. We love life. We love wholeness. We love freedom. And so we will stand. I, I don't know who, who made this quote. I, I thought about looking it up this week, but I didn't think I'd say it. And now here we are. <laughs> We'll just give it to G.K. Chesterton because that makes it sound smart and good. <laughs> he said something like, soldiers don't go to war for what they hate. They, go, they, they don't go to war because they hate what's in front of them. They go to war because they love what's behind them. We stand for righteousness because we love. We aren't just willing to be different we're not just willing to be different. We, in many ways, are morally obligated to be different for the sake and the benefit of others. We are committed to making family, marriage, relationships, what they are really made to be because that's what we do. We make things what they're really made to be. You are salt in your workplace because that's who you are. You bring out the best in people, situations, and relationships because that's what salt does. Your neighborhood cookout feels different than it did the year before you moved there because salt changes things. You are okay with making things different when you're around because what's the other option? Covering up the fact that you're salty and just trying to blend in? You are not bland, you are not unnoticeable. You are salty. You are noticeable. You are effectual. You are noteworthy. You are the salt of the earth. Yes, we ought to look for ways to be salty, but mostly we need to grow in surrendering to the reality that we are salty. You don't have to do anything to make salt salty, but you do have to work if you want to make salt not salty. See that salt shaker on the diner table that's been there for about 34 years? <laughs> that salt can sit there for a long time and it'll be salty the next time you pick it up and shake it. You don't have to do anything to that salt to keep it salty or make it salty. It's salty because it's salt. It's not going to spoil. It's not going to go bad. It's not going to go rot. If you want that salt to not be salty, you have to actively corrupt it. If you want 
to take away the saltiness, put some sand in there with the salt shaker. You know, you're not, getting, you're not gonna parse those things out. It's just you throw it all out. Throw some dirt in there. That'll make you need to throw that salt out. But unless you corrupt it, that sucker's gonna last. That thing's gonna be salty because that's what salt does. The Holy Spirit, my friends, is stirring in you every day and you know it. You know it. You actually, you know the voice of the Holy Spirit way better than you think you do. It's pretty much every stirring in you to do the right thing that makes you feel uncomfortable. I don't hear God. Oh, yes, you do. And I know you do because Jesus said, you are my sheep and you do hear my voice. You are the salt of the earth. He is stirring in you. Every day, the voice of God. It's the conviction that you have when you know you're acting out. It's that stirring in you. It's the uneasiness you feel when you know somebody really should take a stand for something around here. It's the passion you feel when you are around injustice or unrighteousness. It's the sense you have about the right thing to do, the loving thing to do. The godly thing to do. The thing to do that would line up with the Beatitudes. Every time you have a sense to do or be a person who reflects or lives out the Beatitudes, I promise you it's not the devil leading you to do it. I promise you it's not the rotten flesh of the old man who's trying to get you to be righteous. That is the voice of God. That is the voice of God. If there ever be a voice in you encouraging you towards Jesus, encouraging you towards the kingdom, I promise you that that is the voice of God. It's not your personality. It's not just the way you're wired. Because even your personality and the way you're wired, if it points you towards righteousness, that is the grace of God on your life. That is the voice of God planted in you before you were even born and had a choice about it. There is nothing righteous in us. So if there ever be anything in us stirring towards righteousness, that is God. And you can follow him. You are a change agent. So go with it. Go with it. Go with it. Run with it. Lean into it. Leave a mark. Make an impact. Notice a person. Improve a situation. Be poor in spirit when egos are flaring. Just go with it. Mourn over sin instead of embracing it. Choose meekness when you have the opportunity to overpower. Choose not to be, not, choose in your godliness to not lord it over people and compromise it with the world. Give mercy instead of disdain. Be fueled by a pure heart instead of an anxious heart. Make peace instead of waiting for someone else to do it. Praise God instead of questioning him in difficulty and persecution. That's who you are. Just go with it. It's who you are. This is who you are as a Christian. This is who is in you. And none of this is legalistic. It's really, frankly, it's just logic. I've put it on the screen for us. Teacher Sanako. Salty, salt is salty. It goes like this. You are salt. We're down it. 
Therefore, you are salty. It's that simple. Go with it. Go with it. Go with it. Go with it because Jesus is telling you, he's challenging you not to let our self-centeredness, our need to be comfortable, our need to be understood all the time, our need to be liked by everyone, our ideas of influence and relevance that aren't informed at all by the kingdom of God, don't let those things corrupt your saltiness. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And I feel the Lord telling me to go spend money on those off-road light bars I need for my truck. As a prophetic act. Somebody back, go with it. The way that we live our lives should make people have to squint a little bit. Like when somebody's got their high beams on coming down the opposite road of the high, on the highway. The way we love one another, our Christ-centered worldview and faith, our eternal perspective, our kingdom-oriented lifestyle should affect people as if they were in a dark room and somebody just flipped the lights on. A city on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. Similar to being salty, according to Jesus, it takes work for you to not be bright. If you don't want light to brighten up a room, you got to work at it. You got to cover it up, you got to hide it, or just turn it off all the way. But you don't have to do anything for light to be bright. You don't have to do something, you do have to do something drastic if you want to make light dark. The unbeliever should see his world differently in the light of how a believer lives his. Things ought to be illuminated that were not seen before. Things should be seen more clearly and in more accurate detail such that even deeply held convictions, opinions, and beliefs must be changed because the world is seeing their view of something was so incomplete prior to its illumination that any thought about that thing it was looking at needs to be completely reevaluated. Are you hearing how drastic this is? What I'm trying to say is that in the dark, you can see something that is a piece of paper, but you can't see that it's a symphony until you turn the light on. You know something is a rock in the dark, but you don't know it's a diamond until you turn the light on. The illumination from our lives of God being born in us, leading us as we follow him and surrender him and lay down our heavy burdens and take up his easy yoke, it should be bright like that. So that when we live, we don't blend in, we illuminate. We illuminate things. And yes, you should expect that when the light of Christ shines on something, People should realize 
that what they thought they were looking at doesn't quite look like that at all. Jesus is not trying to restrict humanity from the good life. He is trying to resurrect humanity from sin and death. We see righteousness as a muzzle too often. We don't want to harsh on anybody's mellow. Jesus is trying to set you free. You don't need to burn out trying to be something you aren't in your life. You need to shine bright being the Christian that you are. Light is bright. You are light. You are bright. These are proper expectations for us to have as Christians. Should we have an expectation that doesn't line up with what we've discussed so far this morning about what uh, ought to happen because of a result of our Christian living or what our experience of Christian living should be like, if we have an expectation of that that doesn't line up with what we've talked about, we need to lay down that old expectation because these are the proper expectations. We should be change agents. We are salty. We are bright, and that changes things. D.A. Carson, I quoted him last week. We're going to do another one because it's just so good. He helps continue to shape our expectations of, our, of Christian living when he says this. He says, these kingdom norms, what we talked about last week, what we're talking about this week, these kingdom norms diligently practiced in a sinful world constitute a major aspect of the Christian witness, constitute a major aspect of the Christian lifestyle, and, this is a big and, and this witness gives rise to persecution. See, we're trying to get our expectations properly shaped. We should expect that we are changing. We should expect that things are not the same after their interaction with us, and we ought to expect persecution. We should expect that as change agents that bring preservation and illumination to the world, or I'm sorry, we should expect to be change agents that bring preservation and illumination to the world, and we should not expect the world to thank us for it. We should expect that should we hold to this teaching and live in response to Jesus' teaching, it will result in such a radical display of perfection and righteousness and godliness that it will elicit a violent response from the world that we live in. Because of the way the light in our lives reveals unrighteousness and serves as an indictment to the ways of the flesh. When we live this way, there will be repentance in the world. And there will be persecution from the world. Because our spirits yearn for this. And our flesh despises it. Over the next few months, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, you will be brought into uncomfortable tension as your feudal mind corrupt flesh and broken world are repulsed by the purity of Jesus while at the same time your resurrected spirit 
that knows the mind of God and is an heir to his kingdom and is quickened to life by Jesus' invitation to himself. You will want to follow Jesus with everything in you and you will completely understand why people crucified him. You will want to give him your life and you will wish that he would leave you alone. You will want to weep as he forgives you and run as he convicts you. You will want to melt as he shines on you and hide as he exposes you. So what do we do? Let's choose him. Let's choose him. Let's choose to be his disciples. Not, not just individually, you and me, us. Us, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Let's do this together. For our lifestyles to be reoriented, it's going to be challenging and all-encompassing, and I say we go for it. I say we go for it, leaning into Jesus, learning from Jesus, listening to Jesus, trusting Jesus, because we believe that in him is life, and that life is the light of men. And it is only in his light that we even see light. Let's call it out in each other. Let's celebrate it in each other. Let's encourage it in each other. Let's pray for each other as we lean into this, as we work it out, as we find where we're doing it well, and as he shines on the places that we aren't. Let's pray for each other. Let's lead each other. Let's lean on each other. Let's sharpen each other. Let's shout for each other. Let's listen to each other. Let's be safe for one another. Let's believe in one another. Let's do this together. Because you're not the salt of the world. I'm not the salt of the world. We are. We are. I want you to stand as we close our time this morning. We're going to have our prayer team come on up as we always do. And very simply this morning, I just want to invite all of us, whether you stay in your seat, you come up for prayer, or whatever it is that you do, I want to invite all of us kind of back to the first couple verses of Matthew chapter 5, where it says, Jesus saw the crowds and he sat down to teach. And it says, and his disciples came to him. They didn't know what he was going to say next. They didn't get a preface before they sat down. They just had to decide, do I want what he's going to say? Do I want where he will lead me? Do I believe that this man is the life that I'm looking for? Yes or no? And I want to invite every single one of us to that moment again this morning. Will you be his disciple? Will you come and sit before him? Whatever he says, wherever he leads, however it feels, whatever it looks like, knowing that him and him alone leads us to life. So if you need prayer for anything, you may need to just have somebody stand with you to make that confession. You may need a miracle in your life. You may need God to do something. That's why we always have prayer available. You may need to come up and just kind of have your own moment with God. You may need to stay where you're seated. It doesn't matter what you do on the outside. I'm inviting every single one of us. Come to the mountain where Jesus wants to preach to us. 
and make the decision. I'm going to be his disciple. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you are here with us this morning. We thank you for your word that leads us and teaches us. And we thank you that you would come down in our flesh and bone to inaugurate this kingdom, transform us in this amazing salvation by grace and teach us and lead us. I pray that you would give us faith by the Holy Spirit to come and lay down our heavy burdens and come and learn from you. Make us your disciples, Lord. Teach us. As we worship you this morning, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would highlight in every single one of us how we can respond and come to you. In the beautiful name of Jesus.